All right, so if you were taking a class called Indie Rock from the 80s, here's a question that might appear on the final. What is the common denominator between Volcano Suns, Dump Truck, and Big Dipper? Here's a hint. He's very tall. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Captain Bill hit the sonar. of Big Dipper, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Steve Michener. Let me tell you a little bit about Steve Michener and Big Dipper and the Volcano Suns and Dump Truck. Don't worry, I'll make it fast. Big Dipper, the Volcano Suns, and Dump Truck were all three indie rock bands from the 80s. We could just leave it there, but there's so much more to the story than that. But the key to the story for today's podcast really comes back to my original question. And I know I've already given away the answer, but Steve Michener is the common denominator between those three bands. And why is that, you might be asking? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. He was in all three. This this indie rock class you're taking, it's not that hard. So one more thing that the trio of bands that I mentioned have in common is that they were all based in Boston. So it only makes sense that the Massachusetts-born Steve Michener was in all three. The Volcano Suns were an outfit that he put together with former Mission of Burma drummer Peter Prescott. Then he stepped in on bass with Dump Truck after their first album, playing on the Positively record. And then he co-founded Big Dipper, who were on Homestead, before signing a big major label deal with Epic. I've always loved Steve's playing. He's steady and strong, and his bass lines roll with power and groove. Now, the story today he's about to tell us is how he jumped into music as a kid and very slowly inched his way out as an adult. And I think the inching out is what's the most fascinating thing here. Sometimes people have the ability to look ahead and actually ask themselves, what do I want, and is this the best way to get it? Well, Steve did that and he realized the things he wanted could not be attained while playing in a band. And so he stopped. Well, sort of. Then he really stopped. I'll let him tell you his story. That only seems fair, right? Anyway, Steve's a lovely guy and a voracious listener to music of all kinds. He may have inched his way out, but he's kept a foot firmly in it on his own terms. This is a great story and a great chat with, you guessed it, a great guy. So here you go, me and Steve Michener having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. 
it's interesting because every tour we'd go on and no matter what we'd all get sick and I think it back then it had a lot to do with uh, I'm sure the stress of the road but that was also the times when um, you had everyone was smoking mm. so four of us were all non-smokers generally um, well I'm talking about Big Dipper when, when Dump Truck was there were some smokers in that band um so maybe they didn't get sick but i we used to get sick and big dipper uh pretty much right off the bat it would be like inevitable first week and we'd have the shows where we always deal with it you know usually hit in atlanta and um and we'd be sick for a week and pass it around and then and then we'd feel better and <clears throat> be in good shape but uh it was um that, it always was an issue. I mean, there's a you're you're leaving your home and going into strange environments. <laughs> yeah, and eating terribly. Eating terribly. Yeah, not sleeping well. You're right. But yeah, I think I always blame the cigarette smoke, but it it was probably a combination of factors. I remember I saw the Violent Femmes play this um, really small show in. It was one of those like press only invites. It wasn't a public show, and they played this little bakery in. San Francisco because they were just coming back it was like this was like 80 maybe 88 and um I remember Bob Mould was there and he was it was a bakery and he was in the middle of the bakery just smoking cigarette after cigarette and then people are ordering croissants and you know <laughs> and Bob Mould was just, I mean he wasn't the only one I just remember him not stopping of course what bakery was that I don't even know and I actually interviewed Victor um from the Thames and I asked him about it and he didn't even remember it so and I'm sure it wasn't a dream I'm sure it happened <laughs> you know but but in those days you like clubs out here like the Berkeley Square did you guys ever play the Berkeley Square yes yes uh we played with uh, the Jayhawks okay so that was a palace of smoke it was this tiny yeah. room to fill. Yeah. you couldn't even see the band you had to do this to see the band right mm -hmm. uh but I, always, I never thought about how that affect, I, mean, I was a non-smoker too. And so it was dense. I never thought about how it would affect the band, uh, but I imagine it, it had to have. Yeah, I mean, that that's my theory is that we just weren't used to constant nonstop smoking. I mean, it was like, <clears throat> you could, your voice would, like Bill's voice would drop down an octave and um, it was, uh, it always turned me off to, to smoking. But like I said, when I was in dump truck, uh, Sean and, and Seth, I think, were um, were always, they smoked a lot, even in the van. Yeah, there's lots of pictures of them smoking in the van. So I think we, I was more used to it then. Well, yeah. And also, there's something about like a young man smoking is a cool look, but it, it's not one that you should get attached to. <laughs> no. I work in a hospital and I see the, the uh, results of a lifetime of smoking sometimes with the so yeah yeah exactly um i was thinking about you i was thinking about the common denominator with you is with music is like you seem to know when to get out like, <laughs> like you you were you know you just seemed like uh you left the sun yeah, yeah right and then you left a dump truck and you left big dipper and at, at interesting times because it seems like big dipper got signed did you leave right after the slam record I actually made it through the tour. The tour is what probably ended up finally tearing me away from the band. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Like some people would say like, oh, you're, 
I like your positive approach, Alex, because like some people say, oh, you just leave a lot of bands. It's like, no, I know when to get out. It's like jumping out of the airplane. Yeah. So. Well, was there was there any anguish about about leaving those bands? I mean, because you're, you're talking about the Suns, Volcano Suns, Dump Truck, Big Dipper, and doing the research, I was like, and then Steve left, and then Steve left, and then Steve left. And I'm wondering, like, you, to me, it seems like you, there was some savvy involved in that. Like you, you seem like you knew why you were doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think I obviously each situation was different, and um, I think if you look at the resume like that, then it it does seem a little suspicious um, <laughs> as to why I would um, be constantly leaving bands. But you know, in and there's certainly to answer your question, there certainly was a lot of um, sadness, uh, regret sometimes um, in in ways, of course, because you you get involved in a situation, uh, creative situation like that, and you're um like with volcano suns and we started uh it was a very um it was fun it was a, it was a new and you know especially since it was the first real band that i was in um and we had garnered a lot of attention right off the bat just because we were playing with peter you know peter prescott was the drummer fresh out of mission of burma um so it, it it got us, it was kind of a shortcut for us because we got to this point that probably would have taken me and Gary years to get to if we ever even achieved that of notoriety, being able to, you know, sign a um, sign to Homestead, that kind of thing, get the shows that we were getting. Um, but in, in Volcano Suns, it just, it, it went from being fun to not being fun. And so, um, when I left, Gary left first, uh, summer of 84, we'd been together like a year and a half. And um, so when Gary left, it made me think, oh, something, maybe something's wrong here. Um, and uh, then I realized, oh, Gary, yeah, Gary, <laughs> I was just kind of ignoring the problem. Gary was right uh, to leave. And he had his own reasons and I had my reasons, but yeah, I was sad to leave because I was jumping off of a, a moving train. You know, we had just, we started talking to Homestead about signing um, and recording a record. <clears throat> and in fact, we were probably in the middle of recording the, what would have become our record, what eventually became <clears throat> um, Bright Orange Years when John and Jeff um, took over the, the uh the, the positions and uh and finish that record so so yeah there was some sadness there but looking back i was happy to leave because um it was not a healthy situation you know uh, i don't want to destroy anyone pop anyone's bubble that being in a band is like all fun and games you know there's a reason why people are in bands it's usually a certain amount of dysfunction and when you get to people together like that it's often a very dysfunctional relationship i was thinking about like well, what would i would have done i mean if i was in a band with peter who was such a legendary person i would i would have been too timid to ever approach him how so how was that conversation was that was that a sleepless night or two <laughs> yeah well it wasn't <clears throat> excuse me it wasn't easy um 
because at the time I was also working with him. And when I had, when I, uh, one of my first jobs in, in Boston was uh, working at Copy Cop, which was a franchise. There was kind of a similar one in San Francisco. I, I forget what it was called. Um, kind of a chain of copy and print shops that um, uh, attracted musicians because of the uh, nature of the work for some reason. And so I started working there. And then when I joined Volcano Suns, when we started Volcano Suns, um, I got, Peter was looking for a job. And so I got him a job there. So we worked together at the same store for that entire time. And then when I was um, leaving or decided to leave it, yeah, it was kind of uncomfortable to then, you know, it's kind of like breaking up with your girlfriend and then still working with her every day. So um, yeah, he was not, he was not too happy about that. And it took a while for us to um, heal our friendship, but, but he's always, you know, he's grown up. So we got it and, uh, you know, it worked out better for him, I think, you know, Gary um, and I leaving probably, you know, John and Jeff, I thought were a great uh, version of that band. I really liked that. Uh, I really liked them live and I really liked the records that they made. Was your plan with Dump Truck, because your, your tenure there was a year, right? Mm. Yeah, about a year, yeah. Was that, because you were on the Positively record and, um, but was the plan just, was that a short plan in your brain or were you intending to stay longer? <laughs> no plan. Um, <laughs> I had gotten, I had quit be, uh, Volcano Suns in, um, in the, I guess, August or September of 84. And um, I got a call from Seth or Kirk because they knew that I, they were looking for a bass player. Um, and they knew that I had just left Volcano Suns. And um, so they called and <clears throat> when they told me that they were going on tour, that was very intriguing to me because Volcano Suns had never gotten to that point where we <clears throat> were actually going on tour. And for a young musician like myself, the idea of getting in a van, um, not working for a week <clears throat> and driving down to Atlanta and back sounded like heaven um so that was really my lure to to get into dump truck i was like this is a band that wants is ready to tour they were getting a lot of attention for uh d is for dump truck and they had been playing as a trio um switching off on bass and guitar between kirk and seth and so they they wanted a full-time bass player so they could both play their guitar solos and um <clears throat> so that's that's when I joined and uh, with with uh, Sean on drums, <clears throat> and uh, yeah. So my plan really was to just um, be in a band and tour. I didn't know how long it would last or what it would be like. I didn't know those guys, um, so it was kind of a it was kind of a crapshoot. It was like it was nice to be asked to be in a band. So um, so I took it. <laughs> They, those guys the core of that band they were they were uh connecticut guys right yes um seth and kirk were from connecticut and uh sean was from rhode island and what about you were you an east coast guy too i grew up in the suburbs of boston so i grew okay. up um in a small town called canton about 20 miles from downtown boston and uh, had been uh 
kind of following since the late 70s, the, the music scene in Boston, kind of timid to, to use your word, timid to go actually go into clubs. Like it was always kind of a, a big deal to go into Boston. Of course, then uh, one complicating factor was I turned 18 and I was legal uh, to drink. I could go to bars and then the governor changed the drinking age to 20, I think. So suddenly I, I wasn't legal. So then I couldn't go to bars. So then we started going down to Providence, Rhode Island or, uh, or Pawtucket, Rhode Island to see bands because the drinking age in Rhode Island was, was lower. So yeah, I lived about halfway between Providence and Boston. Did you develop a friendship with those guys in Dump Truck? Or, I mean, it was, I know it was a quick tenure, but um, and I know you heard the, the interview with Seth. I mean, is that, are you guys still in touch? Did, did you develop a relationship with those guys? Oh yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I don't know how much, I mean, this is true of a lot of my friends, the friendship would have survived if it wasn't for Facebook. Mm. Uh, so Facebook has really like brought a lot of us back together. I mean, um, it's turned me on to uh, the fans of those bands that I was in, uh, which is nice. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, we had a good time, you know, while we had a good time. The problem with Dump Truck wasn't the individual people, it was just the dynamics. The reason I left is because it's just, again, it was dysfunctional. Um, but as it was obvious, uh, after I left, uh, Seth and Kirk weren't getting along. There was a lot of tension in the band between the two songwriters. Um, and um, they, I think, I forget how long it was after I left that Kirk left, but I think they got like one more tour. Um, out of the, well, they toured positively, so I recorded positively uh, in this in that summer of '85, and then uh, we were getting ready to tour. I recorded we recorded it in uh, Winston Salem, and then I was getting we were getting ready to tour. We had done a few shows on the East Coast and we we're getting ready for the big tour. And that's when I decided to get out because the tension um, in the band was just gonna be too much. You know, it's just, um, it was harder to leave Volcano Suns because I had something invested mm. <clears throat> musically. You know, I was part of the creative core of the band, <clears throat> but with Dump Truck, and I, I knew I was getting into this when I did is in Dump Truck, I, I had joined to be the bass player. You know, I was filling the, filling the spot, I wasn't, they weren't looking for songwriters and they weren't um and that was fine I, I was happy to do that and fill the spot but i think you know part of it was that as time went on i was like oh you know i really would rather be in something where my songs are welcome and i knew i knew this wasn't the place and that was fine um but then also the you know the the underlying tension in the band and uh you know it just got to a point where it wasn't fun and why do something if it's not fun? I mean, it wasn't like they were, you know, it wasn't like I was making a million dollars. Right. And I had reasons to go. I was getting a $5 a day per diem <laughs> yes. on, on tour. Back then, that was a lot of money. And um, so it was, um, you know, that that decision, the decision to leave Dump Truck was not so hard. It was, it was awkward because we were in the middle of, you know, getting ready to, tour and we're making videos and doing all the promotional stuff and I was sad that I wasn't going to be able to uh, play shows 
playing those songs that we had um, recorded for Positively. I was uh, I was happy with the with my work on that record. Um, but yeah, it was kind of I don't know what the the meta metaphor is or whatever the comparison is but I was just the side I was just a bass player and that was fine so when it was time to leave that band it was I was like thanks guys I mean did you remain a fan of the band could you, could you did you listen to for the country and oh yeah I loved for the country I thought that was like um a, a really incredible record I was yeah. like really surprised that uh not surprised, but I was pleasantly. I I didn't know that Seth would could would have been able to make a, an entire album all by himself. I thought you know that the the key to the band was this kind of collaboration. Even though they pretty much wrote their songs separately, um, you know I always considered Dump Truck to be Kirk's songs and Seth's songs, um, and I had my favorites amongst those. Um, so when they when I heard that Kurt Kirk left and that they were going to be going to record an album, I was a little hesitant to think that oh, is this going to be the, the same or is it going to be any good? Can Seth come up with a whole record? But um, as you pointed out on the, the podcast with them, it's it's a great record. It's a great sounding record, and um, and the, the songs I thought were the strongest songs that they'd ever ever done. Did you know Kevin Salem? Yeah, I knew Kevin. Um, I think I met Kevin from, um, when he was on tour with, um, I don't know the timeline of when he joined. He joined right after Kirk left. Right. Yeah, so yeah, he was, he toured, so he toured the, yeah, yeah, okay. He toured uh, Positive, or no, he, no, he, <laughs> He toured uh, for the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Kirk still toured positively. Um, yeah, and then, but I really got to know um, Kevin when he was in Yola Tango, filling, doing that uh, fake book tour. Um, and uh, yeah, great guy, amazing guitarist, and really good addition to that band. If you, if you can't have Kirk, then uh, having uh, Kevin Salem is the next best thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what I'm trying to figure out for you is about you is, and then you've got Big Dipper who, who I just, I just love Big Dipper and the sort of the career with you and Big Dipper kind of culminated in that sort of gold rush of major labels signing every indie band. I remember like, you know, O Positive got signed, Big yeah. Dipper got signed, Rave Ups got signed, mm -hmm. um, Poi Dog Pondering got signed to major labels. Um, and I think that had something to do with REM. I think it seemed like they were trying to find like mine the college rock. Remember that was called college rock, right? Mine the college rock bands and see if you could find an REM, um, which was which was good and not good because it it ended up sort of um, destroying a lot of careers. But before I get to that, I'm just curious about you. Was your plan to always be in a band, or did you always think like? there's gonna come a point where I'm gonna to need to pursue something non-musical for my future. Cause I remember I was talking to, to Pat Fisher, the jazz butcher um, a few years ago. And he said, you know, he said, I, I was always future blind. You know, I just sort of like, <laughs> I sort of just let things happen. There never was a plan, but there are some people, 
you saw it a lot in punk rock. Sorry for the long question, but you saw it with Milo and Greg, Greg from Bad Religion, Milo from Descendants, even John from Blake Babies, where they, you know John becoming a lawyer, Greg becoming a professor, Milo literally going to college, like the, like the <laughs> album says, right? So you could see some people had a plan and some people clearly didn't. Right. Um, where did you fall in that spectrum? I, I think I would go along with uh, Pat Fish on that and just say like, you were just kind of seeing what would happen. I mean, I um, had, would have loved to have made a career. I, I still uh, love to remind my wife that if I uh, had more talent, uh, musical talent, then I probably would have never met her because I, I still would have been playing in, in dumb rock and roll bands. Um, I was just, I was along for the ride and I, I made a point of always like catching on with good people. Um, I learned that lesson early and um, I never, I never thought, oh, I'm just waiting for the time when it's the Steve Michener solo show. Um, I just wanted, I re really enjoyed the collaborative part of the, the music business um, and was just kind of going, going on that train, kind of going along with, with what would happen. And when Big Dipper came along, it was um, the most comfortable train. It was the best, you know, the best train that had come along so far. Um, so I definitely was interested in writing that to the, to the end. I was probably, but I, I was probably definitely future blind to that. I um, eventually came to the realization that the music business wasn't where I wanted to be and gradually extracted myself and, be, uh, and ended up going back to school myself and getting a nursing degree. Um, but yeah, for, you know, 80 from 84 until 90, I was, you know, just, I wasn't doing anything but um, anything important. I was working these kind of dumb jobs uh, that the main attraction was they were flexible enough to let me go on tour. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think everyone, I mean, even John, I think, you know, uh, I know John Strom and um, even though he has had a, a brilliant career and law and, and music, I think that if the Blake babies had taken off, um, I don't know if he would have, <laughs> I'm speaking for John, who would be a great interview too. Yeah. Uh, but he, I don't know if he would, you know, if, if they had blown up like Nirvana, I mean, I think, or Big Dipper had blown up like Nirvana, you know, I don't, I don't, I think, I think for him and law and, and for me, nursing was kind of a fallback on the, you know, getting to the point where you're like, okay, this is not, this is not happening. Personally. Was there a moment where you went back to school, you went to your first class, came <laughs> home, you sat down to do your homework and you went, wow, this is a totally different, <laughs> this is a totally different life. Yeah. What you, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it was definitely had to. I mean, that's why I said I had to extract myself because even though I kind of committed to it when I left Big Dipper, as I left Boston, I left, I moved to San Francisco, and my goal was to um, immediately start taking classes. And uh, I was even, I, yeah, I waited a little bit to get my residency, which turned out to not really be a 
big deal to the state of California, but um, but yeah, it was it was hard. I mean, especially since I'd never really been to college before that. I had gone right from high school into Boston and started focusing on playing on in band. So um, yeah, college was a new frontier for me. Um, and yeah, it was kind of a bit of a drag because I was like, shit, I because <clears throat> you have to do college by yourself. You know, there's no getting in a van and going out and with your friends and <laughs> and there's a little bit of that, I guess. But for the most part, you have to go home, do the homework yourself, take the tests. Um, it was a very challenging field of getting into science, uh, you know, human the science of the human body. <clears throat> so yeah, there was definitely a, a period where it was it was um, you know letting go of a dream, I guess. And coming to the coming to terms with the reality that um, you know it, it wasn't going to happen, and that uh, I was, you know, but I was happy to be on the pathway to actually find a, a career that I liked and one that would make money. Because <laughs> the other thing about being in a band is you're always broke. Yeah, and I think that's very true. And I think sometimes what's that Morrissey line where he says the low life has lost its appeal. Yes. I mean, I think there comes a point where you just kind of go, I can't do $5 a day. I can't do that. Tomorrow draws his breath in, and then he heaves a sigh. Because tonight he's sailing against the chopping tide. She is fetching, she may not know it now. I'm from the Bay Area, and I know that 
1990 or so when you got here that there was a fairly fertile musical scene that was still happening. Was there ever a moment where you drove by Slim's or, you know, the I-beam at the time and went, I could hook up with another band. I could still do this. Well, I actually did kind of fall into, um, I ended up playing bass with a, some version of uh, Barbara Manning's band. So she had just released um, her solo record, I think. And I was a fan of that record. And then I got to know the band, uh, the band World of Pooh when they came to Boston. I actually, uh, when they came on tour in support of that record, I actually drove them around. Uh, it was kind of a downtime for Big Dipper. And so the van was just sitting there and I wasn't doing anything. So I became their tour manager for better or for worse. So, um, when I moved to San Francisco, um, Barbara was, you know, she, had, you probably know, she had con kind of constantly revolving bands. Oh, yeah. Uh, members. And I fit into one of those. I think they were called the Tablespoons. I think she was calling it the Tablespoons at the time. But it was like, uh, I think Melanie was drummer for a while. Then um, Paul was drummer. Uh, Kim was playing cello, Barbara on guitar, I played bass. Oh, and Matt Stahl, um, who was in some other, he was in another cool band. So there's like, you know, kind of, she was always finding like the, uh, the cool people in San Francisco to play with. And uh, so I, I did end up playing with, with uh, that band for a short while. That was kind of like my, I was like, you know, as like my methadone, right? Some band, you know, because they were really going on tour. We were just doing local shows, and um, and it was fun and easy. So uh, I did that, and then um, focused on school for a while. And then Richard Buckner lured me back in, or his manager did. Like he was putting together a band. Um, he was going from being a solo guy to being a band guy, and so I ended up playing in the Doubters for. A short while. Oh, I didn't know that you were in the Doubters. That, wow. Okay. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was their second bass player, second and last, because I think at that, when uh, Richard's very uh, nice guy, but he was very volatile. Um, so he um, broke up the band. I was probably in it for like six months or so, in like right before I started nursing school. Like so, it must have been ninety four. Um, but then he, uh, one day he just fired us all and, uh, moved to Austin and he made that great first solo record. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah, the doubters, they were sort of, you know, they'd had this really kind of legendary, well, it was becoming a legendary, uh, live shows and people were loving, there was a huge buzz. I was in grad school at the time. There was a huge buzz about the doubters at, at the really? time, but did, did that help you? Did, did all of this sort of help ease the, <laughs> the, the rock and the rock and roll, um, easing out of the rock and roll lifestyle? Did those little forays, not little, but did those for brief forays, did those sort of help make it less jarring? Yeah, I think so. It was just a way to kind of step down, you know, part-time bands. I didn't have any, I mean, I was fighting with the doubters. I was like, I, I can't be in a band. I need to focus on nursing school. And uh, Kathy, the manager was just like, oh, I'll just come and play. You know, they need a bass player. You don't have to do it for very long. Just 
just do it. You know, they just wanted, uh, I think they just wanted someone to come in and be able to play live shows and get the word out. Um, so yeah, I mean, playing with Barbara was great. Playing with Rick was great. Um, but they, that was pretty much the last things I ever did. And so, yeah, at that point I got into nursing school, graduated, um, started working, got married, had two kids all within like three or four years. Wow. So at that point it became kind of a non-issue. It was like, I was no longer, I was now working full-time supporting my family, two small child children with a mortgage. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to be in a rock and roll band again. <laughs> no, adult life is on. <laughs> yeah, it all happened very fast. It was kind of uh, an interesting turn to go from like, um, nursing school from from band poverty to nursing school to marriage fatherhood home ownership <laughs> yeah that's you you caught up fast yeah yeah i was on the fast track there and i uh you know the only regret i have there is that we didn't hold on to our house in san francisco i was gonna ask yeah yeah, I have a very sad story about how much I bought it for, sold it for, and how much it's worth now. <laughs> That's not a story you hear very often these days. Yeah, well, we sold in 2002, I think, and we moved to Oakland. And that house is worth even more than the one in San Francisco. Um, you know, these were like not great homes. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm looking at probably like 4 million between the two of them that's worth right now that uh, I could, I could use right now. I could right. use 4 million. Yeah. Where in Oakland were you? We lived in the hills above um, Grand Lake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really cool neighborhood. It was uh, a little... Um, it was actually a historically black neighborhood that was kind of still mixed, you know, still there was a lot of uh, gentrification, white families like ours moving in, but there's still a, it was kind of like the upper middle class black, uh, first upper middle class black neighborhood in Oakland. And uh, it was, I really liked Oakland. I really miss it. It's a cool city. Um, very, um, Everyone always gives Oakland a hard time, but I actually liked it a little better than San Francisco. Just seemed a little more alive at the time. Yeah, I love Oakland. Um, were your were your parents uh, supportive of you? I always ask this because I'm just I'm just always curious about how what the relationship in terms of communication like from home were there you know flashing the bat signal of like. This is not the right thing to do. I always wonder if parents were supportive or alarmed. Um, where were your folks on your on your rock and roll pursuits? That's a good question. Um, well, I think um, I would put them like two thirds concerned and one one third supportive. I think. Um, although you know, I have found some letters from my mom as I was like going through stuff as we're getting ready to move again. Um, and there's a lot of letters that are like, you know, this band thing is not, you know, I pay the bills. And uh, but then one of the letters she had included, as if I hadn't seen it, the uh, review that we got, Big Dipper got a review in People magazine, like one of those little capsule reviews. 
And she was like, oh, you, you got, uh, you're in People Magazine. That's something I can understand, you know? So when you, right. um, and there were a few, a few things that were encouraging there, but she, she mostly was worried, I think, that I was, and rightfully so, uh, driving in rickety vans across the country. I mean, when I put myself in the place of um, her as a parent now with my son, who actually I just sent off to the airport today on the, uh, a five-week solo European trip, um, it's kind of nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah. You know, she knew what I was doing. She probably had, you know, thought I was doing way more drugs than I was. Um, I mean, they were not musical people and they had no interest in rock music. They had, my brothers and sisters came before me, they were older and they had kind of burned them out on the whole um, rock and roll thing because they were kind of 60s hippies. Um, my dad was, you know, they were both depression era, kids and they grew up um you know kind of conservative and not really you know they were like their idea was you get a job you go to work i mean my dad didn't even want me to go to college he's like just nope just get a career i didn't have to go to college i got a good career um so yeah they were um they were not fighting me but they weren't you know my mother would send me five dollars you know in an envelope in a letter to to help me along but uh they never saw us play i don't think yeah they ended up moving to florida and they were kind of deep down there so we never made it that far south um but yeah it's, a, it's an interesting question when i think about being the parent if what if my son joined a rock band and wanted to drive around i'd probably like um buy them a, a really good van a really yeah. good safe you know toyota van or something <laughs> there's a, a a picture of you and big dipper standing outside of a van you guys are about to go on a tour i don't know if you know this photo i'm sure you've seen it and it, it just looks like trouble the, the <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like oh oh yeah crazy. that van was really bad i i do know um the van there's a picture of us in front of our orange like a and it was a uh, so it was like 1987 it was like a 1970 something dodge sportsman van and uh it took us a while to discover how dangerous it was like uh well the transmission blew out like on the first tour and then uh it leaked like a sieve and had, had so many problems um but we were smart enough to know that it was not safe and got a better van so but yeah, anytime you got into a van, I mean, it's just amazing that more bands haven't been, you know, it's like that whole thing. It's like all these baseball and basketball teams flying and there hasn't been a, a real major crash and, you know, knock wood, there hasn't been any, there's been a few van things, but nothing, nothing awful, I guess. No. And I think that, you know, for someone like, like, well, for a band like Big Dipper, would you say that signing to because it was CBS, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, epic, yeah, epic, yeah, epic. Who also had signed a positive, right? The another, right. Positive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that seemed to be the kiss of death for for both bands. <laughs> from to the to the casual onlooker like myself, it seemed like that's so awesome that they signed, 
Um, and then the then the other side of it is, but was it awesome? Because it seems like maybe it it led to, um, you know, it led to the band's demise, or is that a false read? Well, it's a, it's a mixed thing. I mean, I think that, uh, gosh, it just it's so frustrating to me that we, you know, we were all students of rock and roll history. And we had seen so many bands make the same mistakes when they signed to a major label. And we kind of, we vowed that we wouldn't do that. And sure enough, we signed on the dotted line and started making the same mistakes. Um, I don't think, I don't like to, I like to blame ourselves for just being stupid. Um, we, we made a lot of bad decisions. Um, I, we made a lot of, we let, we let the label dictate things like the, the two main things that I thought were the biggest mistakes on the record were the, um, the cover of the album, the cover of Slam, mm. which is really ugly. And we had done all of our own covers before that, you know, Bill was an artist. I was graphic designer. Um, we had managed to put together, I, you know, they weren't the greatest covers, but they were interesting. Um, and then when Slam came out, it was just, obviously like a terrible design, a terrible cover. Um, and then our video, you know, we had all these talented people around the, the band. Um, we had Kelly Reichard who had made the first video uh, for Faith Healer. We had uh, Phil Morrison, our, a friend of ours who went on to fame as a movie um, director and commercial director. Um, and they, they both had great ideas a lot of times. And yet we ended up going with the guy who directed the Roxette videos. It's like, what the hell were we thinking? You know, we paid this guy 40 grand to produce this video where he spent the most of the shoot in the in the trailer doing coke, as far as we could tell. Was that for Love Barge? Yeah, for Love Barge. Um, so, you know, it's just dumb mistakes like that. But, you know, it was signing to a major for us it was kind of before the big gold rush like i think the huge thing happened when I, the stories i heard um more relate to nirvana you know post nirvana yeah. world and we were pre so we were like post sonic youth post husker du signings so i mean those were our guys and we thought oh well if they did it and they maintained their integrity and artistic vision because i didn't see husker really changing or sonic youth changing much when they signed. Um, so we didn't think it was a big deal because Homestead, um, as much as we enjoyed Gerard and working with Gerard and Craig, Homestead was a nightmare. Um, they, you never knew if the records were gonna get out there. Um, you know, they didn't pay, you know, they paid you your advance, but we never, I never saw an accounting, to be honest. I've never still not seen an accounting from Homestead. I'm not saying we, we made a ton of money for them, but uh, it would be nice to know. I mean, when we signed with Merge uh, in 2008 and did their retrospective collection, um, Supercluster, you know, we were, we were all amazed. We were like getting these quarterly statements, you know, told us how many we sold and how much, and we're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Um, I'm sure Sony sent us that stuff, but we were so far in debt with them that nobody ever read them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't regret signing to Sony. I regret the mistakes we made after we signed. If we had been smarter and 
you know, kind of more in the moment. Um, it probably would have it probably would have turned out better, but actually what, what Sony did was they signed us, O-positive, the rave-ups, and social distortion. Right. All in one fell swoop. And I think this was their, like you said, their big, like, okay, let's find the next REM here. And it was just like, literally just like taking four bands uh, that were kind of bubbling under and throwing them at the wall and seeing which one stuck. And by the time we got, like, all oh, the timing was so bad. Like, we had been on the college radio circuit, right? So we released our records uh, either in the spring or early in the year or in the early in the fall so that we could take advantage of the college uh, thing. Our Homestead records had come out so that they would kind of ship the first week of school, <laughs> either winter or fall, uh, summer, uh, spring or uh, fall semester. When Sony, when we recorded the record for Sony, they released it on like the first day of summer vacation. Mm. And so it, you know, went out to all these stations, the college radio stations who maybe were the ones who were gonna play it. Um, and there's nobody there, most of them, right? Right, college radio, they were on summer break. Right, right. Um, and then the commercial stations got it, but. You know, there was, yeah, so they didn't, it didn't really get any airplay in commercial stations when it came out. But um, I think that if, you know, the, if we'd been smarter and said, hey, you know, uh, our crowd is a college crowd. Why don't we just sit on this and uh, release it in the fall that it, it might've made a, a small difference, who knows? Those are, you know, they're forgivable mistakes because it's like, I don't, I don't, those don't strike me as like egregious, all, I mean, how, you know, <laughs> you know, there, people did way worse. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, the cover of Slam seems almost disappointing given mm -hmm. the records before it and also given Bill's ridiculous talents as an <laughs> artist. I mean, he is truly one of the most incredible artists um, I've ever seen. And to have, to have not utilized that or your graphic design experience and to come up with they came up with at the time i don't think it really bothered me but looking back now right. um, i found an old poster of it that they had sent me <laughs> in, in college radio and i went eh, could have been better right i mean yeah you're right you're right i thought oh it's brightly colored it's yeah. eye-catching you know it's it looks like the the background to windows uh yeah yellows right. and blues <laughs> i mean you know it's certainly striking right. but, I, but it also doesn't it just seems like it's um you know, it doesn't, it just doesn't really say much. And, and whereas the other records did, um, how's your, how's your relationship with Bill? Are you guys in touch? Oh yeah. Well, one of the, and again, getting back to Facebook, I, you know, a lot of people rag on Facebook, but I find that it, you know, it, it's like, uh, it's like Keith uh, Richard said about heroin. If you use it wisely, you know, it's, it's a good thing. Um, no, uh, I'm joking, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think the best thing about Facebook is that it's helped us maintain these relationships. You know, we set up uh, um, a Big Dipper Facebook page um, and found kind of that group of people who liked us back in the day. Um, and we've we've really tried to build that community. I mean, we haven't had the success of, you know, some bands like the Pixies who have like, you know, 2 million followers. 
but we have a small and little crowd on there and uh, we'd like to give them, you know, I like to think that we're using Facebook to its best um, by, you know, we, we give a lot of uh, memories of the, you know, we try and give a lot of content. <laughs> That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. We try and um, engage the the fans, the people who like the bands, and the one who discovered it since then. And um, and one of the great things about that has been that it gets us interacting with Bill, uh, me interacting with Bill and Gary and Jeff on a regular basis. Um, you know, the merge record helped kind of bring us back together after, and that kind of roughly coincided with the rise of Facebook too in two thousand eight. Um, but yeah, but uh, it's been a lot of fun interacting both on Facebook and then kind of behind the scenes with um, with Bill and Gary and Jeff. And Bill and Jeff are um, in the final stages of making a record together of Jeff's songs. Not Big Dipper, but just... Not Big Dipper, right. Yeah. Yeah, this is... Um, Jeff just had a whole bunch of songs and uh, Bill had... Um, some ideas and they ended up collaborating. And so Bill sings and plays on it, um, but it's all Jeff's uh, songs and all Jeff's vocals, lead vocals. And from what I've heard of it, which is most of it, it's great. Um, it actually, I mean, I can't help sound sounding a little bit like Big Dipper, mm. um, but Jeff was never a songwriter in Big Dipper until um, the last, record which was platinum planet in 2013 so many years after the core of the band which was like 85 to 90 uh, but he's such a great songwriter i mean he's got uh he's got such a, a quirky approach to life in general and it really comes across in his songs which are catchy funny deep i mean a lot of the songs are about his relationship with his uh, late wife passed away a few years ago um, so some of them are really deep and touching and some of them are just like totally Jeff goofy uh, funny so I'm looking forward to that that's been fun they've been uh, they brought me in to ask about um, uh, sequencing the record which is something I always enjoy doing in Big Dipper um, I always thought that was like one of my extra skills was <laughs> knowing how to sequence a record yeah and it, it it is a skill because there are there are albums where i go boy if they just moved three to four and seven to two <laughs> this would have been a different you know yeah. it's almost like chapters of a book being out of whack do you still play do you, do you still practice or play or um, not really um i have my guitar here and i have my bass here and i'll pick them up once in a while just to if I hear a song and I want to learn it, um, then I will um, pick that up. But I uh, actually have been um, turning my artistic uh, energies to writing, which is something I discovered rather late in life as um, I like to write. Um, and so I've been trying to do these uh, kind of short story memoir type things and uh, I find that that gives me the same uh, that same kind of it, it triggers the same thing part of my brain that songwriting and performing used to do 
Um, so it's kind of fun to be starting over uh, in a new kind of um, creative format. So, yeah, the artistic muscle, just whether, yeah. however you flex it, right? <laughs> like whether you're doing pottery or you're writing or you're playing bass, it's like, it just, that needs to be flexed. Yeah, I didn't do it for a long time. I was, you know, so focused on raising kids and um, working. Although, you know, actually one, one thing I always forget that we did um, was uh, I work, uh, my wife and I and a partner started a winery. Mm. And so we, it was kind of unique in that there were three of us who were the winemakers. We collaborated and we each had wines that we liked to do separately. And then we had, would come together on wines, different wines like blends. And that actually, surprisingly, I wasn't expecting it. Um, it was a lot like being in a band. Um, Cause you had, uh, you would take these elements and try and form them into something that was pleasant, but it was, it was also commercial. You know, there's a commercial aspect, obviously you have to sell it. Um, so the winery was actually, I think a, a good creative outlet for me. I got really into wine, um, coincidentally when I was raising children. And um, yeah, and so, yeah, we couldn't, but we couldn't just enjoy the wine. We had to like, actually like turn it into a business, so. <laughs> You know, yeah. can't enjoy music. You have to, you know, it has to be a band. And uh, so, but yeah, it was fun. Um, we did that for like five or six years and uh, realized that it was a tremendous amount of work and we were never going to make any money at it. <laughs> Sounds like being in a band. <laughs> My wife likes to hear that. I was like, this is just like being in a band. She's like, shut up. <laughs> what one of the things I really I've always liked about you is that you you know you're such a fan of music like you're not it's not like you left rock and roll and went and turned off the radio you know it's like you're still such a fan and um whether it's the Facebook page that that uh you have with your album which I love I really love that page um or what you did with the monochrome set is your enthusiasm for rock and roll um never diminished which to me is awesome like that's that's the flame that needs to keep alive right yeah. oh yeah i agree it's uh i can't help it it's uh i mean this project that i'm doing on the facebook thing reminds me of like how important music was to me when i was a young person and uh, how it really just woke me up shook me out of a kind of a suburban slumber you know it's like um you know, like quoting Morrissey, it's like, I know Morrissey's not a popular person, but he, he's, uh, he wrote that song about how, you know, the, the music, the, the songs are your friends, you know, and they saved you. And that's what it was like for me. And um, there have been times where I've kind of, you know, years where I've like, got tired of the music business and some bands, you know, I take very personally and annoy me, but, uh, um, but I always come back to, to, like you said, loving the music and um, I can't help it with, uh, you know, I've got this um, gene in me. It's like, I, I love to help out the bands. You know, it's like, I guess I've got the help, the helper syndrome because I'm a nurse. I like to help people. Mm. 
so when you know when monochrome set came to california or came to the west coast and they needed a driver i i, I volunteered for that and then uh, robert forster came into portland and um i i was friends with his manager from the big dipper days and he said he was looking for a, a driver so i was able to uh, pick up robert forster and uh, drive him around to his gigs and get him back to the airport the next day so and of course that's very selfish because it sounds like i'm helping them but i'm really just like you know how much fun is it to get to spend time with your musical heroes and getting to know the guys in monochrome set and hanging out with robert forrester was just like one of the highlights of, of my life so uh yeah i'm still a fan i still love discovering new music and um it you know it's it's harder as you get older i think to keep up with it um but there's so much good music out there i mean i work with so many people or i know so many people who stopped listening to music in high school kind of like that theory that you know your last year of high school or your last year of college was like the last year that you bought records mm. and you know so you have your last you know your records are like all huey lewis and the news you know <laughs> um but yeah i mean that's why we do it right why we do it it's funny you said about forrester because before i talked to you this morning someone sent me a go-betweens bootleg from 88 and and i just thought oh, i'm sure the sound is not going to be great or anyway the sound is great and the set list is great and they work so great and you realize like just the magic of that band they're one of those bands where you just go holy cow you must have caught them a couple times right oh yeah we actually got to play with them um volcano sons played with them early on i think it was their first tour when they were touring um i'm gonna forget the name of the record but uh, the second record it was like manasan uh girl oc single um like 83 mm. um saw them and then dump truck played with them in 85 i think we played with them and alex chilton must have been like a big time showcase yeah all thing. the same label yeah yeah and that was i mean i just adored them i adored that band and uh especially when amanda joined and now we you know now there was you know another like uh <laughs> lindy was beautiful but she was behind the drums but now like you had uh, when they brought amanda in that was uh added such a great uh, visual musical element <laughs> yeah band boy no uh, they're just magic yeah and uh yeah the, the i think the record you're talking about, well i've i bought that box set the second one yeah um and it comes with a disc they found i guess that was um a live record that they had recorded and completely forgot about i think because it was almost you know towards the end of the band and um it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's like great band, great songs are at the top of their game. I mean, they could be on and off, I think. Um, they had some erratic behavior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at yeah. time. But yeah, they're definitely one of my favorite bands in the world. And uh, and um, yeah, Robert, did you see his solo show a few years, like right before the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just an amazing performer, just like such a great uh so great 
yeah very quietly spellbinding he was on the show too and he was a lovely guy and i loved his book um, oh yeah. yeah you know he's he, he's just something else but yeah it's it, you and i are the, you know with with over a hundred years on this planet combined we still <laughs> maintain our we're not crusty guys who don't have the same passion for what we used to love it's like it still gets me out of bed in the morning so yes yes um, like wet leg and dry cleaning all those wet and dry bands lately yeah there are a lot of those you're right wet leg <laughs> yeah you're right you're right you're totally right um, great stuff oh yeah there's still such great stuff out there um I just recently discovered, I mentioned on the podcast with Seth, I just discovered the Neats. I didn't know anything about the oh Neats. Oh, God, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, when I was listening to the podcast, I was yelling at the, into the, you know, yelling at you through the, <laughs> through my iPhone. I was like, you haven't, you don't know the, oh my God, these guys. Yeah, yeah. They were, yeah, they were one of the, uh, like, I, we were so lucky to, and Seth got there a little later than I did, but um we're so lucky to live in that town because starting from the late seventies all the way through to when I left in 1990, there was just so many amazing bands and the Neats were just like playing every, you know, Friday night and they could really, uh, you know, they weren't, I, I tended towards the noisy bands. I liked, you know, obviously started with mission to Burma and I liked the, this uh, volcano suns after I left. And so I liked all these noisy bands, but, there were bands that were mainstream sound, more mainstream sounding bands like the Neats. Um, oh God, I could like, I'm sure like a half dozen other bands I could think of that, um, that weren't noisy, that were poppy, but were amazing. And yeah, what the Neats did, I think is, is really special. And they're one of those great lost bands because they broke up too soon. Yeah. Oh, they, they're staggering. I mean, I got that compilation, <laughs> the Ace of Hearts compilation. They're oh, yeah. staggering. That is a staggering collection. Actually, that's the first thing I did after I listened to the, uh, I was walking my dog through doing this big, long dog walk. And I listened to the uh, podcast with Seth and you and enjoyed that. And then first thing I did is it's like pulled up the Neats record on the, I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's so good. And then um, I listened to the Country. That, well, and also, also so good. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy we got a chance to talk. Thank you for doing this on a, on a Saturday. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. Thanks for uh, being interested in the bands and uh, thanks for doing the podcast. I really enjoy it. You're, Thank you. Uh, you're creating a large um, database of uh, uh, not just music, but, uh, but tons of um, interesting interviews. And I hope mine uh, can join that. <laughs> it will. Mine holds up with that. I love that uh, love director interview. That was so much fun. I love them. They're, they're, they're going to, I'm going to bring them back. I just love talking oh to those God. guys. They're, they're like my, my, uh, my funky uncles. They're just, <laughs> they're just the coolest guys. I love them. Oh, it's great. <laughs> but thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the, uh, of the museum here of my, that I'm building. <laughs> You're very well. He's such a nice guy. Steve Michener. I really enjoyed that. 
Uh, I always felt a weird kind of familiarity with him because I had a towering friend in high school named Steve, and they looked alike. (laughs) And Steve in high school, my pal Steve, he's the one who gave me the Dump Truck album. And I looked at the inner sleeve, the photo of the band, and it looked like him. Anyway, it wasn't him. It was the other tall Steve. And uh, uh, anyway, I always felt a kind of weird familiarity and kinship with Steve Michener, and it was confirmed by this conversation. Very, very nice guy. And check out his old bands, Volcano Suns, Dump Truck, Big Dipper. Uh, When it comes to Dump Truck, get the album Steve plays on, Positively. It's a great one. It really is good. Um, And uh, Big Dipper, check out their back catalog. Whoa, not a bad song in the bunch. They're such a great band. Uh, Follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor. Follow me on Instagram, at Ember's Podcast. Or just email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review. And tell every single person on this planet that you know about our little podcast. Does that sound fair? All right. BombshellRadio.com will tell you all you need to know about our radio station. I believe all of our housekeeping items have been addressed. Uh, Let's close the show with some more Big Dipper. How about Loch Ness Monster? Let's do it in full. Here we go. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here. On Bombshell Radio. Captain Bill hit the sonar and Steve weighed anchor. Something hit the boat and nearly sank her. A fin broke the surface, a bump past the water. Come out from the lock, come out from the lock.